0: Windmill 347 to Trap One. How do you read
1: me? Over. Thank you for downloading this Trap One podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Jason. And I'm Keith. So, uh, Keith, this is the first time we've recorded over Skype, so it's going to be a little bit unusual because we only live sort of two minutes from each other. We're normally uh, sitting around my kitchen table like Stephen Moffat and Matt Smith planning Series 5. We're making the best of it, and uh, while we're on the the great lockdown of 2020. Indeed, I'm wearing my mask right now, so I don't
0: uh, spread germs over the airwaves, do you? That's very considerate. (laughs) I look fabulous in it, I'm just uh, boosting myself, really.
1: Is it your cyber mask? No, no, not
0: this time, just my uh, uh, my medical mask. It uh, hides my face beautifully. (laughs)
1: I've uh, seen some ones on the internet where people are wearing sort of party hats and, uh, and that kind of thing um, that obviously got the elastic around them but just wearing them uh, on the front like a beak and, uh, and various things to go shopping I actually collect them, but I got quite I
0: thought it might be amusing to uh, wear a different one every day for work and I suddenly thought oh, actually that wouldn't be amusing at all, <laughs> I decided against it
1: Yeah, cool and, uh, and Jason, I uh, understand the lockdown does not work in the same way over there
2: I'm coming to you from the borough of Brooklyn in the great city and state of New York. We have been on lockdown for about three weeks. My job, which is federal, has been on lockdown for a little bit less than that because the official government position is that the virus is a hoax. So we have social distancing in New York, but it's been difficult to enforce, I live a four-minute walk from Brooklyn's Prospect Park, which is the central park of Brooklyn, rather large. And it is a haven for joggers and bikers and hikers and horseback riders and kids on skateboards and scooters and bird watchers and urban wildlife enthusiasts. And up until Monday, which is the last time that I was out of the house... It was still very, very, very crowded with the jogging-slash-bike lane pretty packed during the day. So the governor of New York has recommended that we avoid going outside, but has permitted solitary exercise. Then I would say that my fellow New Yorkers have been stretching the meaning of the phrase, quote, solitary exercise, unquote, almost to breaking point. So they finally closed the playgrounds a few days ago while leaving the parks open. But going outside, it's very difficult to social distance when you're doing your quote-unquote solitary exercise. And, of course, there are large portions of the United States that are still refusing to social distance or shut down at all. There are eight states with lots and lots of people in them which have not been following any of the guidelines. So getting this thing under control in an atmosphere like this is going to be problematic at best.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're similar over here where we were allowed sort of, uh, let's like say, solitary exercise or with uh, with members of your own household while observing the social distancing. But um, yeah, it seems like it's not, not being particularly strictly observed in all, all cases either. Um, yeah, I'm working from home now, which I always complain that I never get to spend much time in my study, um, but now I'm in there all day surrounded by all my Doctor Who books and stuff, but I have to sit there trying not to be distracted by it all and and actually get on with some work.
2: All three of us here are either working from home, which in my case is making court appearances by telephone, my wife's case is making television shows from her Mac, and my kid is participating in online school, which involves about 30 minutes a day on Zoom with her Classmates, and the rest of the time is independent self-study. So some of us are a little busier mm-hmm. than others. The hard part for me is I'm still on my project where I read every day of the week, Monday through Friday, one part of a Doctor Who episode via the Target novelization. So Friday I got through The Happiness Patrol Part 1, I typically read on the subway, and it's very easy to read your target on the subway, but at home, when all three of us are home 24-7, it's difficult to carve out the time. So my reading is somewhat slowed down, and even though I'm home 24-7, reading has become harder than it was when I was commuting to work, and I don't quite understand how that is, but
1: Mm
2: -hmm. I guess it's just a matter of being home is not the same as having unlimited free time.
1: Yeah, well, I normally spend my lunch hour at work reading, because um, the, the staff room's got a little kind of corner, a little nook with some sofas where you can go and read, um, but yeah, being at home, I, um, I spend time with my wife instead, so um, yeah, my reading is uh, has fallen back as well. Um, I downloaded um, The Loved One, which I know is one of the inspirations for Revelation of the Daleks, but uh, I'm only like one or two chapters into it, so uh I'm not going to be able to talk about it. you
0: lucky Evelyn Wall, yeah no?
1: Yes, yeah. <laughs> Um, Life yeah, was, uh, the party he was. <laughs> so one of the things that, that Doctor Who fandom can be grateful for uh, during this difficult time is that we've now got Eric Sayward's long-awaited novelisation of Revelation of the Daleks. Oh, lovely link! <laughs> um, what do we? Uh, so first of all, um, how do we like the TV TV version of this story? Um, I'm almost certain that you like it, Keith. Oh, like possibly rather partial to it, yes. It's my
0: second favourite, Colin Baker.
1: What's your first
0: favourite? Attack of the Cybermen. Best Cybermen story of the classic series ever. Hmm. <laughs> I'm not saying it's the best story, I'm saying it's the best Cyberman story, because um, <laughs> it actually does things with Cybermen like cyber conversion, which majority of the um, classic cyber stories actually sort of ignore. <laughs> Only Tomb really focuses on it, and that's So hideously racist, it's hard to watch it comfortably these days. So uh, Attack, I maintain, is the best Cyberman story.
1: And you've seen Silver Nemesis?
0: I have, yes. (laughs) I mean, but it is Cybermen, but it could be anybody, really. They're just there because they're silver. You could put the crotons into that as well. It wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to the actual story.
2: (laughs) And there's my new fanfic project, rewriting Silver Nemesis with the crotons. (laughs) There we are.
1: The crotons aren't allergic to gold.
2: So when Flores starts talking to the Crotons about Nietzsche and Superman and we are the giants and you are the monsters, how do the Crotons understand that in terms of human idiom?
0: Hmm. They they're just evaporate there and then and save an awful lot of uh, exposition.
2: Uh, yes, yes. <clears throat> now, if the Crotons are going to be in Silver Nemesis, do we still have the scene with the skinheads and the social workers? Definitely, yes. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd certainly hope so. Um, I was always
0: rather partial to that scene as a young gay at the time, so. (laughs) Those gentlemen were rather appealing, as I recall.
2: If you were to line up all of us on this recording as Colin Baker era fans from strongest to weakest, I am, if Keith is number one, I am probably number five or six. I've got a lot of problems with the Colin Baker era, and. Revelation was actually one of my favorite stories when I was a teenager. I figure it first aired in the States in 85 or 86. I enjoyed it quite a bit at the time. When I went back to watch it again in 2003, which is when I wrote my review for Doctor Who Ratings Guide, I had fallen off of it quite a bit, and it just wasn't very enjoyable to me. And... I think the worst thing you can say about it—it's a Graham Harper story that desperately wants to be *The Caves of Androzani*. And the direction is terrific, and it's a lot of fun to look at minute by minute. But *Caves of Androzani* is Doctor Who's perfect script, where the Doctor. Eric Sains was desperate Caves to rewrite. Catalyst. It wasn't me. Sorry. Eric Sains was desperate to
0: rewrite *Caves of Androzani*. He wanted to do his own version of it. I think. All the the stories that season are sort of influenced by Caves of Androzani, aren't they?
2: Which is admirable, and I would love to be able to rewrite War and Peace, but if I were to do it, it would be horrific, and that's what happens when Eric Saywer tries to rewrite a competent script. So the genius of Androzani (laughs) is that the Doctor's presence in the story is a catalyst that changes the motivations of all the characters. You have this perfect, noble man, and his being there, being noble and selfless, causes every other selfish character to change their behavior in bad ways, and it inadvertently triggers a bloodbath, and it's gorgeous to watch. In Revelation of the Daleks, the Doctor's presence has zero impact or displacement on the plot at all, and the entire plot would continue to unfold the way that it did, even if the Doctor was not there, which is Kara's plot against the Great Healer and Orsini's blowing up the Great Healer, and the Imperial Daleks coming in and arresting Davros and taking him away. So the story is fun to look at, and I will say that Alexei Sale does the best New York-slash-American accent in the entire 26-year run of the classic series, and that includes actual American actors like John Brandon in The Tenth Planet. (laughs) So just as an American, Alexei Sale is my favorite thing about the story. But it just doesn't work. It is much less than the sum of its parts. Now, I watched it again a few months ago as part of my rewatch. So I read the Sayward novelization, and I watched the two episodes back. And it's better than I remember from 2003, and it's got its enjoyable bits. And as a novelization, as we'll explain in a few minutes, it is better than Sayward's novelization of Resurrection. But it's just not a great story and I don't think Attack of the Cybermen is a great story either. <clears throat> it's probably my third or fourth favorite Colin Baker, but my third or faith, my third or fourth favorite Colin Baker is probably my hundredth or hundred and twentieth favorite classic series story, if you go all from end to end. So I wanna be the negative voice on the podcast today, sorry. Shopt and stone
1: I suppose one of the things about, um, with the the novelisation of, of these stories is, 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 what is it for really, because the the original target novels were to re-enjoy stories that had been on TV that you, you couldn't re-watch because there weren't many repeats, and home videos weren't out yet, and you didn't have all the kind of on-demand services that we have now. Um, it's so is it completion. Is it just, I was going to say, is it completion? You no, know, you've got the set. Is it just so that they've all been novelised? Exactly.
0: That's the only reason I bought them. They're there now. I've got a whole set. When the uh, like the when the electricity fails, I'll be able to uh, still have every Doctor Who's story in existence. I can read by candlelight. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, I think I think this should be uh, possibly now more of an onus on uh, you know expanding on the story, um, you know, in the way that you started to get with the um, with the McCoy ones. You know, I think like uh, like Battlefield and um, Remembrance of the Daleks, those those novelizations add a lot more depth and texture to the stories, don't they?
0: I hadn't actually expected them to, them to be more like the Pirate Planet or something like that, sort of like an expanded novel rather than they are sort of like a traditional target novel in effect,
2: aren't they? Mm. See, I just finished rereading Remembrance the other day, and it is remarkable what that book does to the story, because Aronovich tells the story from the point of view of so many offbeat characters and concepts which other target novelizations weren't doing. Aronovich reinvents the format. He's the first guy to get inside the Dalek shell and explain how the Dalek programming code works.
0: Adds potential quotes from Richard the That's
2: right, and <laughs> adds the uh, life support systems, and tells from the point of view of Davros before he became, uh, you know, destroyed, and. Aronovich puts everything in there. And Sayward doesn't really take the opportunity to get inside the Dalek casing and ask why the way that Aronovich did, even though he's writing, what, 30 years after Aronovich and certainly had the chance to imitate some of Aronovich's inventiveness. I'm also going to disagree. I don't think that these books were written as fan service to give us a way to experience lost stories. These books were written to make money and to take up space on the bookshelves and <laughs> oh, sell money. lots and lots and lots of copies. So Sayward is here to make money rather than to do fan service. Fortunately, I think he does add additional scenes and one additional character to the Revelation book. He does a much better job of this than with Resurrection, which was a very cynical, almost parodic half-rewrite of a story that he didn't appear to like in the first place. Revelation, at least, is more truthful to the TV story and adds a little bit of depth and gives us a little more things that we couldn't see on the small screen. But as Dalek novelizations go, it is certainly not a patch on John Peel or Ben Aronovich. That's Jason's unpopular opinion, number 75 today.
1: The uh, the thing that he did with the Resurrection novelization that he didn't do here was add a little bit of individual characterization to the Daleks, wasn't it? You had the... um that Lytton uh, was experiencing, I can't remember if it was like the Dalek Supreme or something like that, where he, it was, uh, the, the where the Dalek's been quite sarcastic and um, had, you know, a bit more, there was a bit more range for them, whereas here, I mean, I suppose they're fairly secondary to Davros in this one, but they're pretty much straight down the line Daleks here, aren't they?
0: The great Daleks keep their names, though. They're sort of like uh, second, third, prime Dalek and stuff like that, though, aren't they?
1: Yeah, it they still have
0: like... Um, he's sort of given them sort of like uh, prime Dalek and stuff like that as titles and then alpha Dalek, beta Dalek, is it? And then, um, he sort of kept that
1: for the grey dogs as continuity from resurrection. Hmm. They don't have as much maybe individual characterization. I, I know they've got the, uh, the, the titles, like you say, but, uh,
0: none what, of them are described it? as a feat in this one anyway.
1: No, <laughs> that's true. Um, and um, I mean, one of the things that I was hoping you would pick up from uh, while we're talking about resurrection and, and you know the continuity between the two was the talking cat might make a reappearance or there'll be some explanation. Um, I think we learned that there is a cat who lives at tranquil repose uh, called Plunkett, but he's not seen um, or, or heard. So uh, no, uh, no explanation for that one yet.
2: Nor did we get the return of the immortal Space Keegan, who infamously appears in the epilogue to Resurrection of the Daleks. She doesn't fly out of the sky and save the day <laughs> with her mysterious magical space powers at the end, which is either a missed opportunity or a really good idea, keeping her out of it.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's a separate spin off that they've got planned. Uh, so, we, like I say, there's some new uh, new scenes in here. There's a couple of uh, kind of domestic scenes in the within the TARDIS to begin with. A cathedral-sized wardrobe, which would have been a bit uh, tricky to
0: have realised on a BBC budget, so uh, that's quite impressive.
1: Yeah, and the, the Doctor's decided to wear a belt and braces uh, because he decided that uh, he wants to play things safe. He says, recently, I've been taking too many risks. And that kind of made me think, was he particularly taking a lot of risks in Time Lash or the two Doctors? Can't read I just think it's
0: an excuse for the joke.
1: Of it. it was a very laboured pun that was um, over about three or four pages. The, yeah, and then it, uh, it pays off at the end of the book as well, doesn't it? But um, he says, this is my new attitude sort of thing of, uh, of Bell and Braces. But then it doesn't do anything to actually uh, suggest that.
0: No. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't think it's just a way of keeping the Doctor in this, the book more, though. It gives them an extra scene. And all the scenes later with Alex is just basically to give the Doctor something to do, isn't it?
2: Mm. Really, since the doctor is hardly in the original script at all but do you guys really think that Eric Sayward just sitting there in his palatial estate in the year 2019 uh, going from one pile of money thrown to another pile of money thrown <laughs> he's saying gee how do I put more time lash in this book how do I have more continuity links to time lash how do I make that happen now, I, I just don't think that there was ever a point in his uh, life last year writing this where he said I've got a, I've got a fever. and The only prescription is more time lash. I just don't think that was
1: the case. <laughs> no, he thought he thought we need more leptils more tin clavick, uh, and more voxnick. That's the uh, that's the um, the prescription that he uh, he wanted.
2: <laughs> if you actually do a uh, count on the digital version, because I read this on the Kindle version, if you search the term terelectool and Tinklavic, and Dalek. The word pteroleptal appears in the two books combined more than does the word Dalek. That is absolutely 100% not true, but it feels that way. It sure feels that way. <laughs> I believed you.
1: Yeah, I did as well. <laughs> it's, um, sometimes it's so pointless as well, because I think in this book they say uh, something like um, a pteroleptal degree and it's like he wrote it and said, so, oh, I. It's, it's a degree away. No, no, we can, there's an opportunity to use the word pteroleptyl here. It's a pteroleptyl degree.
2: No, it's a man who invented one alien race in his life 40 years ago and is still <laughs> trying to make them relevant. <laughs> and I like The Visitation. It's a very good story, but he never, ever did a sequel to it. The pteroleptyl never really came back. So to keep mentioning this one-off alien species from 40 years ago over and over again, as if they are the biggest villain in the Doctor Who universe, it's kind of (laughs) self-delusional.
0: He's sort of still thinking like a scriptwriter, though, isn't he? He's thinking, if I use my thing, they won't charge me money. So in a way, it makes me wonder if it's it's his scriptwriter head on, if I've got the copyright for this, it won't cost me anything to uh, have this in my property.
2: Malcolm Cole has written a script more recently than Eric Sayward, though. Sayward hasn't really been a script writer in, what, 35 years? Has he done much after Doctor Who? Apart from appearing on Doctor Who DVD Extra Features, I'm not aware of much of an independent career. No.
1: He's got a Lytton graphic novel coming out, doesn't he? I believe.
2: Is this officially licensed with an independent publisher, or is this a self-published... Black and White Vanity Project. It's mentioned at the end of the uh, you
0: know, on the author's blurb in the back of the book, so it's obviously not entirely hidden from the BBC,
1: anyway. Yeah, hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, you're so if
2: there's a big multimedia launch and a uh, nationwide tour, and uh, <laughs> the BBC <laughs> millions of pounds behind promoting lit the graphic novel. Uh, i believe it. rather well, bad timing then
1: it yeah. <laughs> might might not be particularly well attended yeah.
2: <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> Had a casualty with COVID-19 that's one of the more felicitous casualties I guess <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mike, interesting I think I the guy, Target books have been pushed back haven't they right I was just about to bring that up I heard that they oh. were pushed back some of them until 2021
1: which is <laughs> oh really I like, heard push- that
2: Makes sense. I mean, if you have the paper supply chain being disrupted because of the way the pandemic hit China, it makes sense they wouldn't be able to physically print the number of books they want to.
1: Right. Oh, yeah, I hadn't heard that. Um, I'm a little bit worried the season 14 Blu-ray set might be uh, delayed as well, I suppose, depending on um, who can still work in the supply chain.
0: Mind you, we are quite used to that, aren't we?
1: Yes, that's true, yeah. <laughs>
2: I am oh, shocked that my season right, right, 26 actually arrived on its delivery date from Amazon US. That was that was a, that was a minor miracle. Boom, boom, boom. Excellent. Yeah. Did you finally get your Blu-rays?
1: Yeah, got my my, season, I got my... Blu-rays,
2: finally arrived. How about you, Mark?
1: Yeah, I got my season 12, finally.
2: Did you have the correct discs?
1: Um, I, I don't... How do you tell?
0: Because the other ones had John Pertwee on.
1: Oh, right. Uh, in that case, I've got the correct discs on, yeah.
0: Great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize it I'd sent them out with John Perry on them. Mm. Brilliant. They'll probably be
0: more rare in the future
1: than the correct ones. Yeah. So, that, um, uh, just going back to the book, an interesting thing that they... Um, to uh, that, that Sayward expands on is because in the TV story uh, Davros talks about needing more money doesn't he which seems like a weirdly kind of earthly concern for for Davros or the Daleks but here it, it, it's expanded on a bit that we learn that he needs the money for research and to build better Daleks because the Daleks here are a little bit glitchy and uh, they're kind of a bit cheap and shoddily made aren't they which uh, is which a bit interesting and um, and I was interested, I thought maybe could have gone into a little bit more detail here. Um, so if Davros is making the money by selling dead bodies to be turned into food. Dolen green. Yeah. Like how many corpses does he have to sell to build one Dalek? Um, they could have, uh, you know, expand on that a little bit, I felt.
0: Well, if he's using the brain and the brain stem for the main Dalek, the rest of it can go for food. So one Dalek, one uh, dinner.
1: Yeah. But I mean, the, I think the implication is he needs money for the uh, the actual Dalek raw materials as well, doesn't he? And for the experiments, by the sound of it, as well. Yeah, because he's saying that they they only use the best minds to be turned into Daleks. Um, That's true. And it reminded me of the the Emperor in um, Parting of the Ways, the last Eccleston story, where they've uh, they've been taking all the game show contestants, haven't they? And he he says something like, "Only one soul in a thousand was uh, was good enough to be uh, to be a Dalek." A few wow. cells are deemed worthy or something, wasn't it? Yeah, and you think they're only using the best minds, but then Davros says that he offered Joe Bell the uh, the chance of immortality as a Dalek, and you think, well, probably not one of the finest minds, is he? Perhaps the one that is the um, Dalek embalmer. Yeah. <laughs> he was just, yeah, he was going to do the same job, but for Daleks. Um, and that that kind of idea as well that um, that Davros had offered Jawbell to be a Dalek, but had had refused and been allowed to refuse, I thought was interesting as well. And it made me wonder if Stengos had um, Arthur Stengos had also been offered it and had taken it. It seems seems unusual for it to be an offer that you can that you can refuse. I just think it was a line you threw
0: in because obviously I don't think Stengos wanted to be did he? Cause he wanted to manage to have been killed. So. I just think that was a line that um say would have just put in for dramatic effect. I mean, head cannon, I've always assumed that Davros was a slow infiltration and he wouldn't have gone in all guns blazing initially. And then as time's gone by his power's increased and increased. So maybe that could have been an offer in the early days when he was trying to sort of ingratiate himself to people, not realizing most people wouldn't sort of be revolted by that idea. Yeah. And we don't know how long he's been there, do we? I mean, the book sort of implies it's been a
1: while. Yeah, that's true. Um, It it doesn't doesn't really flesh that out, does it? Uh, You get a little bit more backstory about the DJ in terms of uh, how he ended up working there and why they put up with him. Uh, Yeah, that was uh, a
2: welcome addition, I thought. Because as much as I love Alexis Sale's performance, the DJ doesn't really integrate into the TV story very well. I mean, you're right. It does help to have a backstory to explain why he's there and why he's tolerated and what purpose he's served. But the more you guys mention it, the more I'm disappointed in the missed opportunity where you could have gotten a lot more into the financing of Necros and Tranquil Repose. I mean, for example, if you look at what Lance Parkin did with his Davros audio audio for Big Finish, which is all about Davros the Economist, that's one of my favorite Davros stories ever. Mm -hmm. And Sayward could have taken a page out of Lance Parkin's book and done something similar here. Although whether Sayward is aware enough to be aware of what Lance Parkin did is another question.
1: Yeah, sure. You you wonder how much... um uh say we'd kept up with Doctor Who. because uh, you think the temptation would be to uh to, to pepper it with some things from the modern series as well to uh uh you know to appeal to uh to newer Doctor Who fans but um That's was... a
2: reference to the Julian Bleach Dabros.
1: Yeah. So did you say there is a reference to the Julian Bleach one? Uh, I didn't catch
2: one. Oh, I right, don't right. know how to be able to work it in.
1: Yeah. Um, but I wondered if it's like, because Andrew Cartmel um, in interviews, I've heard him say that he doesn't really keep up to date with the modern series because uh, he says it's a bit like when you see an ex with somebody new, <laughs> uh, that he finds it quite hard. So uh, you wonder if, uh, you know, Saywood maybe has that, a similar sort of feeling towards it after he, after his days were done on working on the series.
3: Well, say we're just still living in a universe where a reference to the terra is
2: contemporary and cutting-edge, so <laughs> he's definitely stuck in uh, 1982 amber in his own mind.
0: <laughs> I, know, I suppose all the references to money and economics is because it's a 1980s script. I mean, money was the thing then, wasn't it? So that's probably indicative of um,
1: when it was contemporary. hmm yeah, all kind of Wall Street stuff, greed is good and everything. I mean, I was
0: around in the 80s, and uh, money was terribly popular in those days.
1: I suppose the other thing, um, in terms of getting a little bit more detail on, because something I'm never clear on, I think, from the TV story, and I wasn't really any clear from this, does Cara know that the food is soil and green? Oh, I
0: would imagine so. She'd be clearly dim if she wasn't, and she doesn't come across as a stupid person, does she? So, I would think so.
1: Yeah, because you get the reference where they say that the uh, the scientists are working on making it taste better, but I don't mm. know, is it processed at Tranquil Repose, and then they just receive it as this protein paste or whatever that's then distributed? Uh, that, I that's think sometimes... the book says she has factories, though, doesn't
0: it? So, she must be aware of what goes on in her factories.
1: Yeah. Um, I just, I was just never really clear on that, whether she was in on, on that part of it or not.
0: I mean, everybody in this story is horrible, so we must assume the worst of all of them. So we just assume that she knows and she doesn't care.
1: Yeah, Natasha and uh, grigory they're probably about the yeah, most... Yeah, but she murders people, doesn't she? I mean, <laughs> she shoots people
0: without much in the way of a qualm. Well, I mean, the doctor is just a drunk... I mean, nobody in this is particularly pleasant. I mean, he's a struck-off doctor who is probably not going to be great company to have around. So, I mean, nobody in this is very pleasant.
1: Yeah, even Perry kills somebody.
0: Oh, yeah, she beat somebody to death quite cheerfully.
1: Yeah, that was good that they, uh, the book made a little bit more of that, because it's, it's skirted over quite quickly in the TV episode, isn't it? Um, well, I she if, hits him, certainly. <laughs> yeah. I think in it's the the TV show you get more of the idea of what, he was on his last legs anyway don't you whereas okay. um, the, the book makes it clear that it was the savage beating that, that, yeah. that Perry left him a down. bloody pulp on the floor yeah yeah. Um, and, and that
2: was the character that JNT had wanted to be portrayed by Sir Lawrence Olivier yes <laughs> that'd be marvellous <laughs> Can you imagine in the book <laughs> an in-joke where Perry beats Sir Lawrence Olivier to death well i paid to
0: watch that I don't about the rest of it <laughs>
2: I just came across my favorite, and by favorite, I mean least favorite part of the, the novelization. So the DJ himself is not a horrible character, but Sayward takes the time to tell us, hopefully, that the reason he's called the DJ is because his name is Derek Johnson. So he's called the DJ because his initials are DJ. That That's a uh, normative determinant.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the the other new character that we get in this one is called Alex, who um, who, who like the the uh, the mutant the, whose part should have gone to Laurence Olivia, um, is uh, is the product of Davros's uh, genetic experiments. Um. And it's quite well spoken, so
0: we're having this as John Gilgood, I think.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? Especially when you, bizarrely he becomes a DJ at the end.
1: Yes, and then you think he's died um, because the Daleks come in and open fire but then he pops up again at the end that um, that he survived somehow.
0: Maybe to say what's mellowing with age.
1: Yeah. Um, although I thought the bit was a lot harsher with uh, with Natasha because uh, on TV she's killed by the Daleks, isn't she? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the book she shoots herself uh, rather than be exterminated. Well, she thinks rather than be turned into a mutant like her dad but she would just have been shot, I think. That's what happened on TV, wasn't it?
0: So, yeah, a bit
1: grim. Now,
0: am I being particularly stupid, or did, did the significance of this pyramid with the Daleks and the the um, like the water? I kind of miss. I mean, I've read the book and I've listened to the talking book, and I still can't quite get the significance of this. Am I missing something important here?
1: I think uh, in the TV series you, you see the pyramids when they arrive, don't you? Sort of part of the complex, but they're never. But
0: the,
1: yeah, I get that. But what's the
0: what's the uh, importance of the water pressure and the stuff like that, and the way the Daleks are stacked and stuff? I mean, there's a lot of emphasis put on that. Other than just the delight of having them falling down later. Am I missing something with the water pressure, or is it just extra detail is added?
1: I I took it to be pseudoscience um, and a chance to use the word tinklavic again. Um, <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> um, yeah. This, you just
0: you put a lot of emphasis on it. I couldn't quite work out if I was missing something.
1: Yeah, I didn't really pick anything up. Um, oh, just me then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, other than that, there's, the, the, the doctor has a way of, uh, sort of destabilizing it, doesn't it? So that uh, all the Daleks start... Um, toppling down toppling down
0: yeah even though he's just like davros reiterates that he's actually designed them so they can levitate yeah
1: they're, they're uh they're in suspended animation or something though aren't they i think they're uh, powered down it's the
2: physics of tinclavik guys the physics of tinclavik requires you to have a pyramidal structure it just doesn't work otherwise i mean duh <laughs> That's my fault for not being a
1: physicist. I'm yeah, I'm, I'm rusty on uh, Tim Clavic uh, construction.
2: I mean, the original draft of the visitation part three was a huge lecture on Tim Clavic <laughs> everything. But unfortunately, that was cut for timing.
1: <laughs> oh. That, actually, this would be a good chance. Uh, we've got a, a reading uh, that um, our friend James has very kindly recorded for us.
3: Deciding there was little else they could do with the oscillating double turn Epitran, the doctor and Alex made their way through the security doors and the tunnels back to Natasha and Gregory. Unfortunately, they were too late. Only their sad bodies and smoking Dalek wrecks remained. I should never have left them, the doctor cursed himself as he walked back to the Dalek storage area with Alex. They're dead and we've achieved nothing. Maybe not, Doctor, said Alex, indicating Daleks on a number of the upper tiers as they arrived at the sector. The loss of electrical power had caused some of the Daleks to be activated too soon and they were now malfunctioning. Out of their cocoons and teetering on the edges of the metal shelves, they were about to tumble to their destruction. The disorientated Daleks, involuntarily, launched themselves spinning and twirling down onto the hard floor below. The impact, as before, was catastrophic and very loud. Crack! Splat! The Daleks imploded, causing their organic innards to splutter across the area. Alex looked on sadly at the spectacle, remembering those that he had known and who had died in the great healer's experimentation. So much for the conquerors of the universe, he said, ironically. There are many more intact, the doctor reminded him. We need to get away from here.
1: Thank you very much to James for that one. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter as Jigster 2009
2: I love his background music. That was very tastefully done.
1: Very authentic sounding, wasn't it? Yes. So one of the things I was intrigued by um, was the way that Eric Sayward finishes some of the paragraphs um, in this book with, And So It Goes. Uh, So I looked it up to see if there's any significance of it, and apparently it's from Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Have either of you two read this? About 20 years
2: ago. And uh, to my shame as an American, I have read very little Lonegan. So unfortunately, that is not one of the books that I've read.
1: Do you remember much about it, Keith?
0: Actually, I just realised about 30 years ago, so no.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, well, apparently in that book, um, each character's death is followed by the phrase, and so it goes. Um, which I don't think it's, it's used in the same way here. It's used more sparingly than that. But um, I mean, I haven't read Slaughterhouse 5, but maybe there are a lot more deaths here um, uh, that he, uh, he couldn't use it every time. But I, I just wonder if there's any particular significance. Uh, I don't even know what that book's about as, as to whether it, um, it married up with this one.
2: I actually caught a reference to a different book in here because, unfortunately, I've read more novels by Eric Sayward than I have by Kurt Vonnegut and Jane Austen combined, <laughs> which is probably the worst obituary I could think of. If COVID-19 gets me, guys, my obituary is, who read more books by Eric Sayward than Kurt Vonnegut and Jane Austen combined. Please don't etch that on my, uh, on my memorial. But I recently reread Eric Sayward's novelization of The Visitation, And as bad as Resurrection is, that's about as how good the novelization of The Visitation is. And in the opening pan of The Visitation, there's this remarkable scene in the woods outside of the manor house in London, 1666, where a predator animal kills a prey animal. And Sayward writes, it was the first kill of the evening. Now that's a remarkably good line and it sets up the rest of the book. Well, Sayward takes that same line and reuses it here, although he turns it from a proper sentence into a truncated sentence fragment, first kill of the evening. So he's taking a line about death from one from his first and probably best book, and he's reusing or recycling it here. I thought that was interesting.
1: Yeah, I didn't. So uh, one of the
2: it. best sentences in this book is the best sentence from a book that he wrote 38 years earlier.
0: <laughs> maybe it's closure for his uh, Doctor Who literature. It's he ends as he began.
2: But so he's doing the, uh, of course, uh, Lytton graphic novelization. So maybe that'll be a issue title for one of the uh, Lytton books, and that will, of course, have a 90 or 100 issue run. So. <laughs> <laughs> Must be
0: bought up by Marvel.
1: <laughs> I suppose that having destroyed the sonic screwdriver in the visitation, uh, Eric Saywood needs a replacement here. So the doctor has a, a propelling pencil that has uh, been introduced just for the book uh, that, that he uses for all sorts of situations, doesn't he? I think he releases Alex from his cell with it and, and various other things.
0: That's fair enough. I mean, the Doctor's always done that. He's like, produced tuning forks, a whole story, then never to be mentioned again and stuff, hasn't mm-hmm. he? So uh, we'll let him off with that one.
2: He could have used the Sonic sunglasses that were later sported by Peter Capaldi.
0: Mm-hmm. Or the Sonic lance from the best Cyberman story?
2: That's right, Attack of the Cybermen. Exactly. That, that was destroyed on uh, the planet Telos, wasn't it? That was destroyed in the Cryosian uh, tombs. Oh, that's right. Oh, I've got that wrong. I'm a
1: fake fan. Well. was <laughs> always uh, destroying these useful tools, isn't he? I'm surprised the um, the propelling pencil didn't get, uh, get blown up by the end of this story. I
0: and mean, knowing his writing, I'm amazed it just didn't end up in somebody's eyeball later on. <laughs> I'm
1: surprised it wasn't made of Tinclavic. <laughs> <laughs> it was a terolectal pencil made of Tinclavic. Hmm. So we get... Um, sorry, go on. No, no, it's all right. No, I was just going to mention uh, Takis and Lilt in this. I think it's it stands, stood out for me more in the book than the TV show that they, um, they're they the ones who survive at the end, uh, kind of unpunished. Um, they're, they're kind of vicious lackeys of Davros, aren't they? They, they torture um, Natasha and, and Grigory. Um, and at the the end it's hard so it's allowed
2: yeah their backstory here is a weird combination of uh, brutal and maudlin Lilth especially is given a really bizarre backstory by Sayward
0: in a tin clabbig mate it's just a shame he has to point out that they are Stan and Ollie because they sort of inferred in the TV version but here they actually do a tribute act don't they
3: hmm
2: Oh, you're right. Their, their backstory is they performed as Laurel and Hardy uh, for the troops when they were at war.
0: And one of them had served in a tin clavic mine as a um, prisoner.
1: Naturally. Uh, but yeah, I felt like they it was an odd choice for them to have uh, to be the ones who presumably uh, get rich at the end by, uh, by farming the, the protein plants and uh, uh, helping to feed the galaxy.
2: You know, I think when I finish rewriting the Silver Nemesis to include the Crotons, I think I will rewrite Visitation and The Awakening to have tagus and Lilth instead of the Terral Apples or instead of the Malice. <laughs> I'm a, this makes a lot of sense to me now.
0: Mind you, saying horrible people do well financially is probably not um, just social commentary, really, isn't it? Yeah. uh,
1: Especially (laughs) in 2020. Yeah, it's the most modern part of the book, isn't it? Again, it's very ages. So did we like this book?
2: Shockingly, I did like it, even though I've been pretty negative on it over the last uh, 45 minutes or so. Because... When he was doing Resurrection, he ignored everything that was good about the story, and he replaced it with self-parodic references to Moore and Slipback, and instead of advancing the plot, he was telling us what movies are played in the TARDIS cinema. At least with Revelation, there's a sense that he was trying to adapt the TV story and explain a few things and add a new character, and the text is a little less parody and a little less tongue-in-cheek than resurrection mm. but even then on tv where hugh walter has a comically bad death scowl and literally <laughs> pauses the death scene you stare at the camera slipper <laughs> actually writes that scene into the book which didn't make any sense to me <laughs>
1: yeah i was uh, <laughs> i think i enjoyed it more than resurrection like you jason and Having removed the best line from Resurrection in the novelization, um, which is the, I can't stand the confusion in my mind, he has kept the best line of Revelation in, which is the uh, consumer resistance line that Davros gets. So uh, I was I was relieved that, uh, that he left that in.
2: And some of the death scenes are actually really well done. In terms of prose... Uh, the way that he writes Tass and Beaker's death and the way that he writes Natasha Stengos' death is actually really moving, almost. So there are parts of this book that I actually highlighted and quite enjoyed.
3: Mm.
2: And there's a nice uh, little bit at the end where the doctor thinks back on the DJ fondly at the end of the story. So, yeah, I actually liked it more than you would get from listening to this recording, but I, I did enjoy the book.
1: I thought it an interesting thing where they, they change the DJ slightly, there's the scene where uh, Perry's first with the DJ, and when he tries to stop her leaving uh, because it's dangerous, there's it almost a slight sexual slant to it that she thinks it's because he's interested in her, and she says something like, oh, don't spoil it, like we've had a nice time. Um, that was a
2: really good line, right? I really like that. Yeah, well, which it
1: just, wasn't man, there man, originally.
2: At the the season I mean, 22, I mean, you could episode. episode it would stand a reason she'd expect that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, true. Uh, but yeah, that was interesting. It gave a little bit more depth to that as well. Like say. and like you say, Perry, Perry's quite used to that by now. Yeah. Uh, did you enjoy it, Keith? I like the nostalgia
0: of it. It was quite sort of like comforting to get a, a book you can sort of read in three hours, like the old target books and have the whole story there, there for you. But, uh, it was nice to sort of like spot the differences between the original um, story and what it added and what it um, taken away. But um, I wouldn't say beyond my Top 10 rereads, but um, but I'm a big Doctor Who fan. I'm a big Colin Baker fan. I loved it.
1: I think the the Doctor is far better served, isn't he? Um, I haven't really talked about it that much, but there, there is a new subplot where there is the the big army of Daleks, which are uh, in suspended animations. But well, It's a bit like Planet of the Daleks, isn't it? So the the, the big in pyramids, are, yeah. <laughs> uh, where the, the big pyramids are full of this Dalek army. So the Doctor has a, a bit more to do in the book uh, in terms of destroying this Dalek army, which um, which, would, which would go on to uh, uh, to wreak havoc otherwise. Uh, so that's that is a, an improvement because, uh, like you said at the start, Jason. Otherwise, the Doctor. Doesn't really have much of an impact on the plot, so uh, uh, that, that, that for me is an improvement that his role's expanded. Do you that,
0: think that's because he's recognised it was a fault in the original script, or do you just think that's to uh, pad out the book to a uh, proper length?
2: I'm going to go with the latter. Mm. Sayward seemed to enjoy padding out his scripts with non-doctor material. Even with Attack of the Cybermen, and this is going to be a comment not fully in praise of Keith's favorite story, if you watch Attack of the Cybermen Part 1 scene by scene, the best bits of it are the bank heist bits at the beginning of Part 1 with Lytton and Griffiths and Russell and Payne. So when Sayward said he enjoyed the 45-minute episode format because it allowed more character detail, He was talking about adding non-Doctor and TARDIS characters. So he seemed to enjoy padding out his scripts with non-Doctor material. So I'm going to say that the Doctor and Perry barely featuring in Revelation was the point. It wasn't a bug. It was what Sayward wanted to do. He wanted to tell stories with his own characters and keep the Doctor and Perry out of it. So that's noticeable in Attack of the Cybermen Part 1, and it's really noticeable in Revelation. And the book does go some way toward remedying that.
1: And he seemed to do that more with Colin Baker's Doctor than Peter Davison's, didn't he? In terms of... Key. Well, I
2: never really had a chance to do a proper 45-minute episode of Peter Davison. But I guess you're right. Even with uh, The Visitation, Richard Mace is much more of an important character than anybody else on the TARDIS crew.
1: Mm. Although some of the TARDIS crew were off... Having an adventure in the uh, America's Deep South as well. So, uh,
2: that's right, with T and Adrid reliving uh, Huckleberry Finn. That's right. <laughs> uh,
1: so this is from a short story in the uh, the Target Storybook. If uh, if you haven't read that,
2: or listen to the four hour uh, recording that Mark and I did for the Target
1: Storybook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's something to uh, to get you through self isolation if uh, if anyone gets desperate.
2: Yeah, that'll get you through at least three days of the plague.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing a grand rewatch. I've started with an unearthly child and I'm currently up to this Space Museum.
1: Excellent. I I've, I've never done that, but it it's um, it's something I plan to do one day. How are you finding it? I'm really enjoying it actually. It's good. I've,
0: I've been reading other people lots of other people been doing it at the same time. Most people seem to be struggling through reign of terror, and I sort of like I think the animation sort of like helps give you a bit of a diversion through that and it sort of gets you through to the end. And as soon as you hit season two, you sort of rattle it along.
2: Mm. I loved Reign of Terror. I'm kind of surprised to hear that. So, Keith, as you're going through the pilgrimage in order, what has been the biggest surprise and delight for you and what has been the biggest disappointment? Um, I think just
0: Hartnell. He's just um, somebody sort of gets a bit neglected. I think absolutely wonderful. In these days, people sort of go, Oh, William Hartwell, what a nasty old racist, and blah 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 blah. But his version of the Doctor is fabulous. He's grumpy, he has a character arc, you can actually see him getting more and more cheerful. And as time goes by, I'm sort of got to the <laughs> phase now, and that's quite uh, fun to watch. So, the downside is some of the stories do have too little going on, in effect. The four episode stories dragged over to six stories, censor rights you could argue, could do with a bit of an edit. Reign of Terror could do with a bit of an edit. I really, I'm not a fan of um, historicals full stop. I really love the Aztecs, which I hadn't expected to do. Um, I really love um, Keys of Marinus, despite what everybody says. I think it's absolutely brilliant. So, uh, But I think Hartnell is the big thing. I'm really enjoying him.
2: I agree a thousand percent. I did my Hartnell pilgrimage in 2013 and my blog, which is more famous for what it's abandoned rather than what it's finished, I actually <laughs> got through every Hartnell story in 2013. And I did a wrap-up article on why I love Hartnell's Doctor so much. But other things that I love from my Hartnell rewatch, Vicky was much better than I remembered. I was a, I became a much bigger fan of Vicky. Oh, That's she's much better in in yeah. yeah. than yeah. O'Brien.
0: Yeah even though they give her some god-awful clothes to wear, bloody hell. (laughs) Some of the stuff they forced that poor woman into, I mean, she didn't just walk off. I mean, the the frock they've given her in uh, the Space Museum, I mean, mean, why would anybody design it? It is hideous.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but Hartnell's bathing suit in the Space Museum is the greatest costuming choice ever, so there's that. And all this
0: fuss (laughs) about finding Marco Polo, don't bother.
2: <laughs> oh. Oh,
1: God, it's boring. No. What would be a top pick for them to find?
0: Um. Hmm. Probably. Uh. Tenth Planet episode four. <laughs> yeah. And there's a possibility of that one as well, just for completion sake. Mm. But um, Myth Makers, maybe. Mm.
2: I would love to see Myth Makers Part 4, which is so completely, totally different to Parts 1 through 3. It is so brutal and uncompromising. I would love to see how it was directed, because we don't even have telesnaps from Myth Makers. We have no idea what it looked like. Hmm. Even the loose cannon reconstruction is just completely off the wall, taking everything from other sources with uh, fake illustrations. I would love to know what it looked like as the action flows by minute by minute. One sobering thought was the last time I did
0: this was a ooh, quite a large number of years ago now. And when I did the, the pilgrimage, I slotted in all the appropriate big finish as well. I've kind of realized now, if I tried to do that this time, I would not live long enough.
2: <laughs> Especially now with the three or four seasons worth of David Bradley slash Jamie Glover material. Exactly. Those in?
0: Return to score is rather good, by the way. Anybody listening? I've not gotten to it yet. Yes, I quite enjoyed that one.
1: Yeah, I've got that to listen to. It's uh, it's on my list. lost me. And um, uh, how are you pacing that? How many episodes are you watching a day? It depends.
0: I mean, I because I've been working, I've missed like the last four days, but i shall pick it up tomorrow, I think. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of get because it's not a great deal to do otherwise, I'm sort of averaging about eight, nine episodes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I cheated a bit with the crusade and watched the VHS version, you know, mm-hmm. with um, Ian Chesterton like, uh, um, explaining what's going on from his rather luxurious dining room. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'll make you a deal, Keith. Uh, when you get to the Great White Hurricane and the Big Fish portion of your pilgrimage, have me on Skype and I will fix for you all the ridiculous mistakes they make about New York City in that story.
0: I promised myself last time I listened to that, I would never do that again. So,
2: I will fix the can't nationalities, <laughs> I will fix the accents, I will fix it all for you. I'm because disappointed that very, Pete
0: Purvis so, isn't the best American accent in the series, though.
2: No, the best American accent in the series is the Empire State Building Tour Guide. Exactly. Is it? Oh, my God. Dude, that is exactly what I sound like. You go down the uh, short way, it'll take you uh, 20 seconds. That's literally what I sound like. So, yes, yes, that's that's, that's it. That's the pinnacle right there.
1: I think this is a podcast we're going to do one day, Jason, about um, depictions of Americans and America in in Doctor Who. Uh, we uh, We need to get on with planning that, I think.
2: Uh, yes, after my uh, four-minute recording for the Nikola Tesla episode,
1: that yeah.
2: definitely waived my appetite for going through all the American accents and classic Doctor Who.
1: That was, uh, that was a very funny excerpt.
2: The biggest surprise for me is when I was a kid watching 10th Planet for the first time on an nth-generation VHS copy, I didn't know who John Brandon was. So, if you go deep enough in the bowels of Wreck-Arch Doctor Who in the 1990s, you'll see me say very unflattering things about the American sergeant in Part 1 of The Tenth Planet. Turns out he was a legit American actor. He was in everything. He was in Scarface. He was in Beverly Hills 90210. It's just that when he's surrounded by all these British actors, he sounds fake. (laughs) So, it's one of the most authentic American accents you'll get on the classic series, and it sounds horrible. I there's, a, there's a phenomenon to explain that, but I don't know what that is.
1: There can't be uh, there can't be much crossover between Scarface and, and Doctor Who. <laughs> he must be the only one.
2: There were two actors in classic Doctor Who who were in Beverly Hills 90210, wow. which is a very strange cross-pollination.
1: Yeah.
2: And the guy who played Perkins in Curse of Fenric was in a couple of episodes of J.J. Abrams' first TV series, Felicity, playing a Brit. <laughs> Felicity being one of the few American TV series pre-2005 You mentioned Doctor Who, by the way.
1: Wow. I, I've never seen that. I um, I think the earliest J.J. Abrams stuff I've seen is Alias, which I quite enjoyed.
2: Felicity's the a lambs. bizarre series... Because it also does homage to the Twilight Zone, even though it is not a science fiction series at all. Right. It's very, it's, it's Abrams showing himself, but not fully. This is before mm. Lost, obviously, or before uh, Abrams, triangle, Abrams Star Wars. Mm.
1: Uh, yeah, because one of the uh, one of the costumes from Tenth Planet is in Star Wars, isn't it? One of the bounty hunters wears Bosk. Bosk. That's it. Yeah. When I
2: was eight years old playing with my boss action figure, I had no idea that I was holding Ten 10th planet in my hands. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I had all the action figures from the first two films and sold the whole lot for £25. They'd be keeping me now. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Mm. That's why I can't throw anything away
1: now. <laughs> yeah. And your season 12 Blu-ray set has been massively devalued as well by the re-release, I guess. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you is <for> my pension
1: <laughs> so the other thing that we've been looking at while we've uh, exploring a Doctor Who writer revisiting their TV stories from the distance of a few years is the new material that Russell T. Davis has released for the big Rose Tweet Along uh, which was organised by Emily Cook from Doctor Who magazine uh, there's a sequel and a prequel here uh, the sequel is uh, Originated um, when the former editor of Doctor who Magazine, Tom Spilsbury, asked Russell T Davis to uh, tell the story of the Eighth Doctor's regeneration into the Ninth Doctor at the end of the Time War. Um, and then the, the, the backstory is only after Russell T Davis had written it did Spilsbury check with Stephen Moffat, um, who obviously had his own plans for the Eighth Doctor's regeneration uh, for the 50th anniversary. So uh, it's gone unreleased until now. Uh, so have we both read this? Yes. What do we think?
2: I would love to know what happened at the Battle of Rodan's wedding. I would
1: yeah. love to know. <laughs> <laughs> There's some uh, some really good references in there, isn't there?
0: She probably got uh, replaced by a more glamorous Mary Tam. Yeah. Because Roman is Roman is basically Rodan, isn't she? But uh acted by somebody slightly more glamorous.
1: Yeah.
2: I thought it was oh, yeah.
0: fine. It, was no, it wasn't earth-shattering, really, was it, to be fair? But uh, it was jolly enough and then sort of like a nice look into an alternate time.
1: Yeah, and I think it, it sort of fits as well that there are different versions of this because the uh, you get some really um, uh, kind of deep cuts in here. Like it mentions Jarvelling's church which I kind of vaguely knew that name. Um, and when I looked it up, this is the creator of the Daleks from David Whitaker's Dalek comic strips from the 1960s, um, which I, I think they were all in the, uh, the Doctor Who classic Comics series that was a sort of a sister magazine to Doctor Who magazine back in the uh, probably the 90s, I guess. And I, I had all those and, uh, and read them all. Uh, so it's that idea with the time war that there's different uh, realities are all... Uh, Crashing against each other, Uh, you've got—is it Morbius's? uh, What was the um, Morbius's Red Capital? So um, uh, that's all about sort of like Vasilon being resurrected. The Master was resurrected. Morbius would be a logical one, I guess, to resurrect as well because he—they talk about him leading a huge army, don't they? Before the Time Lords killed him, uh, before Brain of Morbius
2: and there's also references to Beton from Genesis of the Daleks and Goth from the Deadly Assassin.
1: Mm. Yeah, and um I think the uh, the way that Russell T Davis envisages and writes the time war um is is particularly better than than other writers um especially sort of George Mann with his war doctor novel Engines of War. Um, and to some extent, uh, Day of the Doctor you, it, it is very much a traditional space battle in, in a lot of this stuff, whereas uh, Russell T. Davies' idea is a lot more esoteric and things that are impossible really to realize uh, on a TV screen. But here the idea that, that Earth and Scarlet and Gallifrey have been duplicated millions of times and then fired like bullets, uh, I think it says, into the nightmare child's skull. So uh, where, where the doctor is washed up here, there's there's just remnants of, of each civilization lying around. Um, obviously, I'd yeah, say so you you couldn't possibly do that on on, on TV, um, and probably the Moffat version of that is is the moment having that that sentient weapon with a conscience, which is a you, you don't quite see how it works. Um, but other than that. Let's say um, uh, the, the George Mann novel is, is, is very traditional space battles. TARDISes are just kind of used as battering rams to smash through the Dalek ships and things. Um, I feel like that if that novel had, had gone down this kind of line, uh, it would have been much more interesting for me.
2: And it's much more tongue-in-cheek when the Eighth Doctor regenerates into Christopher Eccleston. His first word is, blame me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, and he um, he explains that the, the golden regeneration energy is a new thing, so that's why we never saw it in the in the classic series. That it only happens uh, with with regenerations from uh, the ninth Doctor onwards.
2: Until Steve Moffat redacted it back into the recreated tenth planet scenes in Twice Upon a Time.
1: Oh uh, yeah, the, the first Doctor that has a little bit on his palms, doesn't he? Yeah. That's true. But I thought it was a nice little thing. There's a special cover for it and everything, Doctor Who and the Time War. Make it make it like a target target book.
2: And beginning it in mid sentence because you're turning to the last page of the new target novelization. It was very very clever. It was it was clever and it was cute.
1: Yeah.
0: And it also sort of made fans a bit more pleasant again as well. I think recent events I think a lot of um because, I mean, a lot of fandom had got quite vitriolic, and I think there hasn't been a bit of a sea change for, for fans being slightly more pleasant towards one another again, which is quite nice. And that tweet along itself, I mean, I was, I was actually off for that one, so I actually could follow that. And there was just like a, a warmth about it, which has been missing from fandom for
1: quite a while. Mm. They've all been lovely, haven't they? We've had the uh, Vincent and the Doctor, Rose, Day of the Doctor. They've um, Yeah, they've, they've all I- been great.
0: Yeah, sadly, I've been rather busy of late. But that one, I've managed to catch,
1: and I really enjoyed it. It was lovely.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And we're lucky to have the showrunners uh, still, you know. Although they've they've obviously both moved on to new projects, um, still still involved enough to to do that and to want to do it, and then uh, give their time. Uh, I think uh, I think we're quite fortunate. With Plus, to be fair, they're possibly needing a distraction themselves. True, yeah, um, yeah. Of course, I was thinking that as writers, they um, they they're probably in a lot anyway. But uh, <laughs> I guess uh, you know they still have to do meetings and all the rest of it, don't they? Uh, but uh, no, but I, I think they've been um, they've all been really, really lovely. And, uh, and getting Matt Smith um, to uh, to to be involved as well, and and, and Karen Gillan, who's obviously a huge star in her own right now, to still take the time to um, just speak I'm- of a nice community, doesn't it? I've missed all this. What was Matt Smith involved in then? Um, the was it the Eleventh Hour or Day of the Doctor or, or maybe both? Actually, I'm not sure. Oh, so I've entirely missed that.
0: What a shame! Yes, uh, yes. So, what did he do? Did he tweet or did he did he just um, was it? had he left quotes or something? What? Uh,
1: he was he was tweeting along. I think I think using somebody else's account. Maybe I can't quite remember now.
0: Right. Oh, how marvellous! No, I didn't
1: know that. Yeah, it was, oh. uh, no, that was uh, that was good. Was nice.
0: So, I knew Karen Gillen was getting involved, which was, as you say, was um, unexpected and rather brilliant. So, yeah. Oh no, I didn't know that. That's uh, that's rather pleased
1: me. Mm. Yeah, and all that stuff will still be there to find. And um, what they call it, Storyfy, I think, when they uh, you can you can put the tweets together. So that, that's probably been done and, and made them easy to find as well. And the sequel to Rose that we get is Revenge of the Nestine. It is. <laughs> uh, which is uh, also written by Russell T. Davis and um, read by Jacob Jacob Dudman, uh, which is available on YouTube, so I will put a link in the show notes if anybody's uh, missed that or the, the prequel.
0: An amazing Doctor impersonator who doesn't have to impersonate a Doctor.
1: Yeah, I was surprised when they got him to do it. I mean, he has got um, a, a really great voice uh, for this kind of thing for a reading voice, but I was surprised, given who they'd chosen to do the reading, um, that there was no element of uh, impersonation. But uh, so the Doctor isn't actually in it, is he? No.
0: But I, I enjoy it, though. It was marvellously bloodthirsty, which is uh, something Russell T nervous has never sort of shied away from being.
1: Yeah, particularly... Yeah, very partic- wicked
2: social satire, too. Very wicked social satire.
1: Absolutely. Uh, it particularly follows on from, the, from the, his, his novelisation of Rose, doesn't it, where the, the London Eye collapses into the Thames um, and there was a the thing about the living statues that are along uh, the Thames Embankment and things. Uh, so he follows that more than the, the TV episode. Uh, we've got this uh, scrap of nesting consciousness that survived in, inside one of the living statues and then makes its way to the uh, the Houses of Parliament. Um,
0: Slaughtering people as he goes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think, like you say about the satay Jason, as well, the because uh, it's because it's been flooded as well, and they talk about it being like a swamp, which uh, is the um, they get all the uh, drain the swamp kind of uh, sound bites, don't you, from uh, from your side of the pond? Yeah. <laughs> Which, um, I mean, it's not really an expression that's used over here as much, but it is what it made me think of when they uh, when they described it as being swampy. Uh, and well, then, Washington, D.C. is literally built on a
2: drained swamp.
1: Oh, so I didn't know that. So there's always been
2: swamp jokes about Washington, D.C. in a way that you couldn't make about the Houses of Parliament.
1: Right, I did not know that.
2: But apart, I would venture to say that most people wearing their red MAGA hats are not aware that Washington, D.C. was built on a drained swamp. Yeah, <laughs> they're unaware of the historical irony of the phrase.
1: Right, uh, and so uh, well, what? What the, uh, the 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 dying Nestine finds in the House of Parliament is um, the, a, the dead body of an MP who's been crushed, um, and they sort of combine their molecules to make a new being who's uh, got the con- Nestine consciousness, but has the appearance of a uh a very blonde member of parliament. With, he's attracted uh, to the ambition, isn't he? Yeah, but it says about isn't ambition, <laughs> ambition, and lust, and uh, uh, and all these various emotions. Uh, so it's um, clearly meant to be uh, our current prime minister, Boris Johnson. I think, isn't it? Out of thought, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a hollow. Ambition-fueled uh, being with who's uh, determined to sort of tear everything down and wreck everything in forty-five minutes. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so they, some of the other stuff he, uh, Russell T Davies uses some of the stuff from the prequel uh, prequel that he wrote as well as the um, some of the same descriptions because he get a description of the Orton or the Nestine Worlds being destroyed, and you get that thing as well copies of planets being used as ammunition. Um, and that, that's why they focused in on Earth, isn't it? Because a copy of Earth was one of the ones that destroyed their feeding world, or um, or something like that.
0: Yeah, it's a wonderfully sort of like big idea, isn't it? As and as you said, it's something that's missing from current time war stories now. Mm. They've all, as you said, they've all become shooting wars. I mean, all the big finish all the um. The book has, and it's sort of a glimpse of what maybe was intended for the time or by the creator, in effect, isn't it? So it's a fascinating glimpse.
1: So yeah, nice little, um, nice little thing to uh, to put out there uh, for fans to enjoy during the lockdown, and uh, nice to get a little bit more of uh, Russell T Davis's writing for the series. Always, I mean, I've always
0: adored his writing, so anything we get extra is always a bonus.
2: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed.
0: I just like the last line. Just going back to the book, I just like the mm-hmm. last line about how he keeps the pause before um, saying blackball and just says it's an answer that will wouldn't be answered for a very long time. I, I thought <laughs> that was quite a sweet way to end it. So, uh,
1: yeah, I was I was wondering how he was going to do that. Uh,
0: and I have to say, for all the his sort of slight clunky dialogue sometimes I thought that was quite a nice little um, end for the book. Hmm quite knowing as well the show, he's obviously not completely divorced from, uh, like, fans' preoccupations to have included that.
1: Yeah, true. True. So, yeah, interesting to see what he does from here, as well as the Lytton graphic novel, whether he ever picks up on the, uh, the Tegan spin-off that he, uh, he teased us with in uh, the Resurrection novelization. I think, uh, was it Matthew Sweet? It was uh, an interview with Matthew Sweet that came out around the time of the resurrection one where they talk about the two books and um, he, he sort of says if you know if, if, if invited to he'd be up for for writing more Doctor Who uh, in some form or another you know maybe another book or something
2: well Mark when, when the Lytton spinoff reaches issue 500 I'll come on and do a special episode of track one for uh, Lytton issue 500
1: it's I'll a make deal. you that promise right now it's a deal
2: <laughs> when it gets to issue 500 I'll be there
1: because he's never um, written for Big Finish or anything like that, has he? I think get did a short story for one of the book collections, and that's
0: literally it of him. Right.
2: What was the short story about, Genuinely,
1: Generally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly hope so. One of the Big Finish um, short trips ones, or when, with the BBC books ones?
0: No, I think it was one of their short story collections they did ooh, years ago. Now, I could be completely wrong, because I didn't buy all of them, but... Uh, yeah, it rings a bell, he'd done something. It was like his first return to Doctor Who for many a year. Right.
1: Hmm. Well, if there's any more, uh, any more out there, or when, uh, when Lytton reaches issue 500, we'll, uh, we'll reconvene. In the meantime, uh, where can we find you both on the internet?
0: I'm still on Twitter on 50DW50.
2: And I am on Twitter at Dr. Who Novels, Dr. Who Novels. I am also correspondingly on the blog, Dr. Who Novels.wordpress.com. I am still in the middle of reviewing series twelve. I've made it about halfway through. Prior to that, I was reviewing novelizations in publication order. I made it two-thirds of the way through. Planet Under the Spiders. Before that, I was reviewing Series 8 in chronological order. I made it about as far as Flatline. Before that, I was watching the classic series in pilgrimage order. I made it about as far as the Faceless Ones. And before that, it was some other iteration. So where will I go next? Who knows? <laughs> will I finish? Probably not. I'm quite glad I didn't follow. you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, it's just... Uh, now that you're up to the... face. As soon as you're up to the faceless ones, you can wait for the animation now to uh, to pick that one up. So uh, that's worked out quite well.
2: I will say that when I was at Gallifrey 1 in February, before the Civilization ended, <laughs> they had back-to-back panels with the... Number 1, with Gary Russell walking us through the Fury from the Deep DVD, which I desperately hope comes out soon. Mm-hmm. But maybe the... Doctor Who material that I'm looking forward to the most in 2020. Well, that and the novelization of Dalek. But the care that is being put into these animated Blu-ray re-releases of Trout stories is stupendous. And the work that they're doing on Faceless Ones and Fury from the Deep. I can't think of any other fandom that is as lucky as Doctor Who fans to have the care put into resurrecting these. 55? 55? year old stories mm-hmm. and then right after that there was a panel taking us through the series 26 and series 14 blu-ray season releases and some of the extras they have planned for uh, season 14 uh, there's going to be a documentary on deep roy for example who is in towns of wing chiang uh, watching these panels and watching the creators talk about the blu-ray releases is just one of my most positive experience as a, as a fan in in 2020 so I desperately hope these Blu-rays come out soon, and that they're not disrupted too badly by COVID
1: nineteen. Yeah, hopefully, because uh, season fourteen's due beginning of May, isn't it? Hopefully, uh, we won't have to wait too long for that one, if at all. But, um, no, we. Me and Keith were at the VoopCon convention last year, and uh, Chris Chapman and Toby Haydock were on stage <laughs> talking about um, the work on the Blu-ray releases, and uh, I think probably season twenty-six at that point. Um, and we got little clips of the. Uh... No, actually, it wouldn't have been season twenty-six, would it? Um, which one had the no, it was season twenty-three, wasn't it? Because it was 23, the. Twenty-three, yeah. The Doctor Who cookbook. We got little clips of, yeah. Uh, yeah. I my they... ticket.
0: I can't see it happening now. Pardon? I said I bought my ticket, but I can't see it happening now.
1: No, no uh, I, I don't think so. Because it's end of June, isn't it? Yeah, and I think um, people just
0: won't be buying them now, will they? So yeah. even if everything miraculously got back to normal, which I can't see
1: by that point, um, I don't think there's been enough tickets sold to make it viable, will it? So I think yeah. that's probably that. I know they suspended ticket sales quite early on um, before the lockdown. And the big finish day, which is due at the beginning of June, um, has also been postponed. So. Yeah.
0: And poor old Carlisle's Comic-Con's... Uh, um, I bought a ticket for that as well, I can't see that happening
1: either, so that's the second time that's had uh, issues. Yeah, um, and that's second only to the San Diego Comic Con, so it's a, it's a huge blow. I know. For, uh, <laughs> it's a huge blow for fandom, um, but uh, yeah, be would um, yeah. be great to catch up with everybody once, uh, once all this is over.
2: New York Comic Con is not until early October. And I haven't heard if it's going to be cancelled or not, but currently the Javits Center, which is the location of New York Comic Con, is currently being used as a COVID-19 hospital. Ah. So hopefully it's restored to its original purpose uh, by October and Comic Con is back on in, in New York.
1: Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, you can still enjoy the Trap One podcast. Find all our previous episodes at Trap trapone.podbean.com. Uh, join me next time when Jason and Simon will be on, the other Jason that is and uh, we'll be talking about season 26 Blu-ray Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then Goodbye
0: Bye Bye-bye <laughs>